Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, episode number 92. Today we spoke to Ben Littleton, football author and consultant for sports clubs for leadership, strategy and culture change. We open a dialogue about Ben's wonderful book, Edge, Leadership Secrets from Football's Top Thinkers. Elements such as the soft skills, cohesion, resilience and creativity are explored. Ben gives tips for entrepreneurs and startups from his time spent with Ralph Rangnick, former head of sport and development at Red Bull in Austria. We dig into the story about overcoming setbacks and facing challenges as per a meeting with Marion Booker of AZ Alkmaar about a swimming pool and how to teach children to face obstacles. Make sure you check out Ben's Football School Series 2. Thanks for joining us on our show, Ben, and here's to everyone finding an edge. Hi, Ben. Thanks for coming on the show. Where are you joining us from today? Uh, thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here and to chat with you about everything. I'm in London at the moment. And what's London like these days? Yeah, it's definitely been challenging in different ways. Work uh, geographically hasn't changed that much simply because I'm used to working from a base at home. So from that point of view, it's not been that different. But um, everyone else's working patterns have been uh, disrupted. And the people around me are working in different ways as well. My children are homeschooling and uh, my wife is working from home. So it it definitely requires different um, mindsets and compromises to be made. But I think these, you know, these are all challenges that that create interesting opportunities and and potentially new innovative ways to, to, to work and to live. So I think out of all of this, out of all the uncertainty and anxiety and stress, we could hopefully have improved models that that will help us going forward what's been the biggest learning point you've taken over the last couple of months ben so i think what's been interesting is the realization that everyone is feeling all sorts of different things but not necessarily at the same time so we might not be on the same page as someone else who uh is ready to walk into is ready to go on public transport or go to a restaurant or make changes to their behaviors at different speeds and at different times so you might feel that there is only one clear way to behave or to do something and someone else um might not be ready for that and is is on a different page in terms of how they're feeling about things and i think that's the same in life as well i mean one of my um big uh ways of working is really using football as a tool for education and self-improvement. And that's what I try and do in, in all my work, in, in my books and, um, you know, in, and, and across the board. And I, and I think you can take that lesson in, in life as well, that we are not always working at the same pace as someone else or on the same page as someone else. And so sometimes we need to be patient and we need to wait and we need to work out what, um, our partner or our collaborator or our client or whoever we're with at the time, what their requirements are and be sympathetic and understanding of, of, the, of their needs as well. So 
I think that's one of the big learnings I've taken. That's excellent. If you could, for the listener, just to give a bit of background about how your writing career began, really. So I've always been interested in um, the psychology of performance. And as an Englishman, um, that really uh, reached its tipping point after the 2012 European Championships when England lost yet another penalty shootout. And so I decided to look at the history of England and penalties. I wrote a book about it called 12 Yards. And that uh, book was an examination into um, what has become a national trauma, England and penalties. And and it then turned into a global study. So I realised that it wasn't only the English that had major problems with penalties. It was the Dutch. uh, It was Ghana. There were loads of individual teams that had problems. There were individual players that suffered greatly from... Uh, having missed a crucial penalty and therefore their career was tainted forever afterwards. And so what I learned from that was that um, the art of taking the perfect penalty was not about technique or ability. It was about psychology and mentality. And so that turned into a really interesting piece of work that took me in different directions as well. I started working with football clubs and national teams um, in terms of helping them with their penalty strategies, uh, trying to um, not guarantee success in a penalty shootout, but uh, increase their chances of success in a penalty shootout. And I'm glad to say that of all the teams I've worked with um, since then, none have actually lost a penalty shootout. So I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that. And there are ways that you can improve your chances of success in a penalty shootout. And so the idea that Penalties are a lottery, and we always hear the coach after, well, usually the losing coach after a shootout say, well, it's just a lottery. Uh, or the commentators will say, well, that's a lottery now. Um, I like to think that um, some of the work I've done has, has tried to chip away at, at that idea. Um, and, it, and it's not a lottery, or at least some luck is involved, but also, um, you know, there are ways you can certainly improve your chances. So that got me interested in the psychology of performance. Um, And as a result of that, I then looked into other ways you can gain an edge um, from a coaching point of view. And that's why I wrote Edge, my second book, uh, which is um, about leadership secrets from football's top thinkers. So that's really looking at um, how football coaches can uh, improve talent and develop performance that is relevant to all of us. So not making players run faster or kick harder, but actually looking at Um, skills like resilience, decision-making, creativity, uh, cohesion, adaptability, all these skills that are really important in our everyday lives, but also for athletes as well. And from that, to develop high-performance culture and top athletes. So that that was also really interesting. And as a result of that, I've then worked, continued to work with football clubs um, to develop cultures, uh, to develop leadership programs, all while using football as a tool for education. I work with individual coaches as well. Um, so it's all under the same umbrella, really, this uh, this idea that football can teach us lessons um, that can take us, um, that can help us in our lives, but they don't just exist in football. You know, you could take the lessons on uh, coaching from a top coach and, and put that into your um, non-football industry, if you're a manager of people, if you're, um, you know, an employee in a, in a difficult situation, you can 
use some of the lessons that, that football can teach us and improve your performance and the performance of those around you, retain talent, all sorts of things that you can do that, that can help you get an edge. That's really excellent, Ben. And you know what really has piqued our interest, obviously, in edge is the fact that you unpacked those intangibles, you know, the, the soft skills that oftentimes make a huge difference and a lot of impact, creativity, decision-making, leadership, coherence, all these sort of things. But I suppose oftentimes when approaching a business or a team, they're all about the quantifiable pieces, you know, the metrics that you can understand something goes from A to B, there's the process, there's the numbers. How can you ensure that they understand the value of those soft skills that you're trying to bring into play? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's um, about thinking about the future. And as uh, we rely more heavily on data and tech, and that there's some really exciting um, you know, things in that field, and artificial intelligence is... Um, coming for our jobs essentially we need to think about what the what the skills of the future are and what um you know how we can best equip ourselves to um get the best out of ourselves and the people around us using skills that are not necessarily um measurable or at least um tech-based and data-based and so when you think about um what we can do that robots can't do you know you think of creativity you think of ideas you think of empathy um you think of certain types of communication um there's certain skill skills that we will always need that we that, that ai can't deliver right so um if you imagine uh, a football club in the future heavily reliant on data, numbers, um, AI for, for, for providing certain metrics, but where is the human touch to get the best out of your players? Where is the coach like Klopp who understands, um, is emotionally intelligent? Where, where is that emotional intelligence? And so a lot of these soft skills demand an emotional intelligence that I think has been lacking in the past, but now um, is proven to be one of the best ways of developing and improving the talent you have and retaining talent as well. Because if you are, um, if you have good people in your organization and you want to keep them, you have to offer them something now that maybe uh, is different to what you would have offered 20 years ago to keep them so if you want to increase their contract and say right we're just going to give you a whole load of money now but we're not going to you know we're not going to work on your development we're not we're not we don't really care about what your purpose is uh, we don't we're not worried about you making an impact we just want you to help us um i don't think that's enough anymore i think uh you know today's um today's generation are, are more are interested in and um, inspired by and engaged by different motivations to older generations and so it's trying to work out what what those are and it may well be um, having an impact giving a platform to uh, an individual so they can have a purpose for example Marcus Rashford at Manchester United uh, Raheem Sterling 
um, at Manchester City now ha- are using their platforms, performers that transcend their sport. And those are really, really powerful. And that allows them, I think, to have greater engagement with their organisation and their employees because they, they are given that platform to do that. And I think that's very different to, right, you've got to run faster, uh, kick harder, and then we'll pay you more money. So these soft skills, I think, are crucial for retaining talent and they're crucial skills for all of us um, to equip ourselves in the future. And thanks. And that brings us on very nicely to, you know, that opening chapter, that piece about cohesion, Ben Darwin, the former Australian rugby player, and his work, you know, the fact that culture can't be measured, but cohesion can. You obviously touch on the, the team ethos on that kind of unique atmosphere and situation around Athletic Club de Bilbao and, and then the piece on the Super Chickens. What for you are the, the kind of major concepts and, and takeaways from that opening section? Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I will try. I, the, 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 the top line is, um, you know, if your team buys loads of players in one summer, it's not necessarily a sign of ambition. It's a sign they don't know what they're doing because how a group of 10 strangers will collaborate together and combine together on the pitch is not necessarily um, easy to, 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 to know. So, it, so retaining talent and developing talent is much more likely to um, be a successful way forward than just buying the, the biggest and the best, which is much harder because that obviously costs more money. So that's that that's the uh, that's the top line of it. But there there are other ways as well that you can develop. Um, performance and the example of athletic club de Bilbao that you mentioned is a good one and that is just having a very cohesive purpose um for your organization that you know you i say the word purpose it could be identity it could be philosophy it could be dna there are all sorts of different buzzwords that um you know that, that are used that are thrown around at the moment but su- surprise there's surprisingly few clubs that have a clear purpose behind them and and, you know the purpose behind athletic club is that every player represents the local community and so they will not sign a player from brazil or a player from england because every player who plays for them has to be basque and their whole purpose is that we would rather be relegated with 11 basque players than win the champions league with five brazilians and even though that feels like it's a disadvantage because they are um, hiring and recruiting in a much smaller pool of talent, it actually has become a superpower because the connection between the players and the club and the shirt and the badge and the fans and the local community and essentially every stakeholder involved in the organisation is so tight that that in, in itself improves performance. So astonishingly, this club that will only hire from a pocket of, I, I don't know how many million it is, but it's small. It's like three million people rather than the whole globe. Um, has never been relegated from La Liga and has won the third most trophies in Spanish football behind Real Madrid and Barcelona. So there are a huge disadvantage to their competition and yet they have found this superpower that gives them a social purpose it improves commitment because it gives everyone a sense of belonging. Uh, they are able to retain talent better. 
And they all have a different measure of success, which I think is something really important to think about um, in every industry is for for this club, Athletic Club de Bilbao, their only measure of success is, is our whole team made up of players from the Basque region? Are they representing our local community because they are local as well? And they don't mind if they win or lose on the pitch as long as they are fulfilling that criteria. And I think a lot of us get locked in what success is and what the important measures of success are. And we're very driven by linear growth and profit um, and trophies and these external um, validations of success. And they're different ways to measure success because we're not all operating on the same playing field or with the same resources. So, of course, Athletic Club de Bilbao can't compete for the Champions League or La Liga like Real Madrid and Barcelona can because they don't have the budget that those super clubs have. So they have found a different measure of success. And I found this throughout my um, research in this book and speaking to other managers and other clubs, you know, one of the most important things that kept them um, relevant, I guess, is to find what their measures of success are. And I think if we can all come up with our own unique measures of success, then that would be great. I mean, for me, writing a book about this in itself was a measure of success. Now, you know, I'm not on the Sunday Times bestsellers list. Uh, the book hasn't won a million awards, but to have spent two years speaking to some of these really fascinating coaches um, and developers of talent was in itself fascinating for me and has become a successful project because it was completed and I've written a book that people who um, have read it have told me they enjoy. So that is my measure of success. But if you had told me 10 years ago, you're going to write a book, um, you know, what, what do you think you want to get out of that? I might have said, well, my measure of success would be a certain number of copies sold. Well, that's out of my hands. I can't, I can't control that, so I don't know why that would be. But, you know, there, there's different measures of success. So that's another thing I took from spending time with this club and also some of the other coaches that, that, that I met on the way. In terms of you going in to partner with an organisation or a team and maybe one that you've noticed that their purpose is misaligned with their measurements of success, what kind of big areas would you try and impact or change with that organisation? So I think it has to be something that... Um, has the power to um, connect and engage with fans. But the key thing is about cultural relevance. And uh, it is this is quite difficult because behaviours change, audiences and fans change, but engagement is what every club wants. Engagement with its players, engagement with its fans. Um, and so to understand that, I think you, un- you need to understand what is, what is going on in, in wider society you need to understand the organization's role within that. And then you need to come up with a, uh, a, I guess, an internal strategy that will retain that relevance uh, within the, the culture for the club um, and then appoint people or have people on board that, that can operate within those parameters. And often you see a club appoint a coach and all the eggs are put in the basket of that coach. So he will have um, full control over recruitment. And um, obviously the coach is the 
public mouthpiece for the club. So uh, every major and regular public messaging from the club will come via the coach. So if that coach's culture and identity or philosophy is to play a certain way and to achieve a certain thing, that will be representative of the club for the duration of that coach's tenure. And then what often happens is the coach will leave. Let's assume he'll leave because he's not doing so well rather than because he's been going on to greater things. Another coach will come in and we'll have a totally different set of criteria and we'll want to sign um, different types of players. And the club will lose some of its identity. I mean, a very clear example of this is is um, what's happened at Spurs from going from Maurizio Pochettino to Jose Mourinho, where you have two coaches who have very different um, identities and coaching philosophies and ways of doing things. And I think that leads to a confusion in what the club represents and what its culture is because you put it all in the identity of that coach and so the skill for the organization or the challenge for the organization is to come up with an um, an identity or a culture that can transcend the coach that can last beyond the coach so um trying to think of, of a club that does this well i mean the red the red bull clubs is an obvious example rb leipzig you know they have a certain way of playing and they appoint coaches that will continue to fulfill that requirement regardless of who they are so Nagelsmann is there at the moment he's he's been doing brilliantly when he leaves which he will do at some point they will get someone else who will continue to play in the same way represent the same values and um you know develop talent and get results in the same way so you have a continuity of culture um which in turn um allows you know allows high performance teams to to um to continue so you have the continuity you have the 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 same culture and and less upheaval so it seems very simple but actually it's it's hot it's easier said than done and just to build off that a little bit more, you know, the, the infrastructure, that unique player development pathway. I mean, think of Timo Werner, who moved from um, Red Bull Leipzig to Chelsea this summer. It's, it's, it was all about that philosophy, the, the system, the ethos that put that into play. Ralph Ragnick, obviously considered a specialist for startups. From the lessons and the time you've spent there, what advice would you give to those people that are starting up in business have had to maybe recalibrate their business, really for those entrepreneurs out there in the world? Uh, it's a great question. Ralph Randick is a really interesting um, character and his approach is, 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 a, is a holistic one. So he looks at the whole package of the player. So he looks as much at the um, emotional and cognitive elements of the player as the physical ones. And I think that's really important as well, as I mentioned earlier, um, in terms of what we want to offer, what organisations want to offer their talent going forward, I think um, offering them the opportunity to, 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 to develop and um, improve and be um, and have a platform, all this stuff I think is is um, is really important because people want to show the best versions of themselves of their, of their true selves. Uh, 
um, there's a psychotherapist called Esther Perel who calls um, this focus on purpose of uh, the identity economy. So, you know, they want to, um, it, it basically asks not um, what am I going to do next, but who am I going to be next? So you need to know what you believe in and what your, what your purpose is. And then you, and then you need to pursue it. And employees want, this idea of a sense of purpose. They want flexibility. They want personal development. So the the traditional linear measures of success that I mentioned, profit and promotion and these awards, you know, are simply are simply not enough. And I think Ranik offers that. One of the questions I asked everyone I interviewed in the book is how do you define talent? So what is talent? Which is, you know, one of the most intangible concepts that we, we speak about. And I know on your podcast, you focus on developing talent and high performance talent and what we can do to get the best out of our talent. But what actually is talent? So um, Ranjit came up with a really interesting answer for this question. Um, and it was uh, a mathematical equation, which was inherited talent. So that's the talent you're born with, plus learned skills. So obviously the skills we're taught, multiplied by mentality. Uh, equal talent and I found that really interesting so we're all inherit we, you know we're all born with a certain set of talent whatever that might be we learn stuff along the way but actually the multiplication element is our mindset our psychology and how we take that on board whether that's openness to feedback what our response is to to threats or opportunities what our resilience is all this stuff and that is the key factor so I ran some numbers on these two things um, just on the side, making 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 numbers up. So I took uh, Mario Balotelli and a player that um, Rannick signed at RB Leipzig, Yusuf Polson, and I did an inherited talent out of ten. Um, and for Balotelli, I put I think I put nine out of ten. For Paulson, I probably put six and a half or seven. Plus learned skills, I reckon. Um, you know, Balotelli's learned a little bit, uh, you know, in, in his youth youth career. So um, I gave him six, I think. And Paulson probably learned about the same. So six or seven. And then times mentality out of 10. Now, uh, Raniak really likes Paulson as a, you know, as a, as a person and as a player um, and as a employee who's willing to develop his own talent and is very committed to improving. So for his mentality, I put nine, and for Balotelli's, I put five. But I could have put six, but it's basically lower than nine. Now, at the end of that, you get a talent number, and this is far from scientific, by the way. This is back of an envelope. But um, you end up with Paulson having a higher talent number than Balotelli, simply because the mentality element becomes the key element in someone's talent development, and therefore... You know, you can't say Yusuf Paulson is a better player than Balotelli, but in terms of the talent that he can bring to his team and his organisation, it, it ends up being a higher number. So Rannick looks at the whole picture of talent. And, you know, one of the biggest things that he's instilled across all the Red Bull clubs is this idea that if you go to Red Bull, you become a better player. And we will improve your talent in all sorts of different ways. You know, that there, there, there is no... Um, coincidence that some of the top players in the market this summer and in the last summer 
have somehow crossed uh, paths with the with the Red Bull organization in, in different ways. So Erling Haaland was at RB Salzburg. Werner moving this year is um, you know is RB Leipzig. But they have, they improve talent. That's what they do. So if you are a, a young player and you want to choose somewhere to go. Would you go somewhere where you're not necessarily going to improve your talent, or would you go somewhere where you're going to improve your talent? Well, you know, I would want to go somewhere where I, where someone wants to help me, and I think I can get better. And so, they are offering something that that gives them an edge. And then, Ben, just flipping the lens from the organisation to the individual, I seen a piece you done on Sky Sports a few years ago where you mentioned uh, Rooney, Ronaldo, and Tevez at United, and you mentioned how Ronaldo's willingness to learn and his openness to feedback were some of the reasons that helped him reach the heights that we probably haven't seen from a footballer before. I'm just wondering about people you work with in organisations or us listening in here, what would you tell us to do in order to embrace that willingness to learn, the openness to feedback, creativity and building maybe resilience? That's a really interesting question. I think we are seeing more and more individual coaches appearing to help in these types of areas so while the the introduction of goalkeeper coaches and striker coaches and coaches by position was seen as you know groundbreaking and pioneering 10 years ago it's much more common now and i think the next step in this is the idea that we will have and see the employment of more coaches to develop the mental side. So um, high performance coach or mental resilience coach or whatever, whatever they may be. Um, we're seeing more and more of these. And I know um, there, there are many practitioners out there, some of whom you know, have spoken on your podcast and are really brilliant and articulate. And I think this is an area of talent development that is, um, feels still quite fresh in in the UK. Less so, I think, in in this in America and in other sports. But um, I think that athletes and individuals who want to get the most out of their talent are are using these people in a really positive way. And you know, you mentioned the idea of um, openness to feedback and response to resilience and. You know, I was I was really interested in the idea of um, resilience because when I when I first started working on my book Edge, I assumed that resilience was just how we respond to adversity. But but actually, speaking to um, the head of sports science and psychology at, at Chelsea, who's a really articulate, fascinating um, uh, psychologist called Tim Harkness. He has done a lot of work around resilience and he defines it as the ability to accurately assess threats and opportunities and then to allocate emotional resources accordingly. And the idea of op- resilience being relevant to opportunities as well really stuck with me. So um, I think people assume resilience is, is always a negative and how we respond to adversity, but it's also how we, how we respond to success and what... Um, tools we use to continue being successful or or otherwise and i think at the beginning of this question you mentioned the the period of time when ronaldo and rooney were roughly on the same trajectory or there was a period at united when they weren't that dissimilar in their performance and i think this idea of resilience to success 
is where their paths took different routes because for Ronaldo, that simply wasn't enough. And I'm not saying Wayne Rooney um, was complacent or didn't try because he's, you know, hugely impressive, dedicated and very thoughtful and self-aware professional. But Ronaldo took this concept of resilience to another level and was determined to make that the start of his career and, you know, go on to, to further great things. And so I think the idea of talent development being only about coping with um, tough time is need to rethink as well. And that brings us in nicely to that point, again, in Edge in your book, Ben, when, you know, dealing with tough times, Marion Bolker, the, the sports development director at AZ Alkmaar in the Netherlands, that, that piece about embracing fear and challenges that... Um, Imagine you have a swimming pool in your backyard and you don't want your children to fall into the pool. Do you build a fence, you know, a protection around the pool so they, so they can't fall into the swimming pool? Or do you actually teach your children how to swim, how to embrace that challenge and overcome the obstacles so that they can therefore swim? So the question really is, what advice would you give to people when they're trying to navigate through these challenges? Yeah, it's difficult because everyone is as I said at the beginning, is on a different page and has their own challenges and is has to work at their own pace. I think the curse of comparison is one of the worst things that we can do. So, you know, if, if, if we see someone going off on holiday and sitting inside a restaurant and traveling on the public transport and we're not ready for that, that's totally fine. Personally, I'm, I'm not ready for, for that. And so I'm not going to compare myself to the person who is ready for that and say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm so far behind. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not ready. I'm not, I'm not there. I'm failing in some way. Everyone is operating at a different pace. And I think to compare is, uh, is really can be very negative. Um, I also think that it's really important to be vulnerable and to be open about that. And we've seen uh, in recent weeks a lot around, um, the, the renaming of the FA Cup is the Heads Up Mental Health FA Cup and Prince William as president of the FA has done a lot of work around mental health, which is excellent. And I think the coaches I spoke to that are the most emotionally intelligent are also very vulnerable. So Graham Potter um, famously performed in a ballet uh, when he was at his first club uh, Ostersund in Sweden with his players and he knew he was gonna you know you knew that wasn't his 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 safe place he knew he was out of his comfort zone um, but he was happy to show vulnerability to the rest of his group because that brought them closer together and Thomas Tucker a coach I spoke to who's now at Paris Saint-Germain as we talked but when I spoke to him was at Borussia Dortmund spoke to me in, in depth about moments of vulnerability that he has with his decision-making and his management of certain talents. And he lets his players see that. And I think that is a way of connecting to, 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 your, to your talent, to, uh, you know, and developing engagement between, um, between employees. So I think that totally works. And so, so this idea of um, you know, how we're going to face the future challenges, I think we mustn't compare ourselves to other people because we have to appreciate that we're all on different pages and I also think that top coaches 
and not afraid to be vulnerable. And I think, you know, we can all learn from that as well. That's great, Ben. There's been some really great insights in the first 30 minutes here, um, some actionable ones as well. So thank you for that. I'd like to switch to your transition um, from nonfiction writing into children's books writing. So the Football School series, which you've adapted over the last few years, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. And it's, and it's pretty much, uh, you know, a similar, um, a similar concept, if you like, because um, it's still using football as a tool for um, education. Um, my idea behind it is to um, get kids into reading, uh, to get children uh, learning about the world, to open up the school curriculum for kids and to show them that everything is connected because often in, in lessons uh, you do chemistry and that's chemistry or you do science and that's science and you do maths and that's maths and um, you know it, it's all in silo so it's op- operates in different, um, different totally different worlds and the idea behind football school is that it is a school where every lesson is about football and it's a series of books um, for children aged between 6 and 12 uh, there are nine books in the series and, you know, it's a way of getting kids into reading, but it's also learning about the world through football, which is what I do in Edge and, and 12 Yards as well. So um, it's education through football. It's education by stealth, really, for the kids because um, they don't actually know that they're learning about the world. They, they're taking it all in, but for them, they're just reading about something they're already passionate about. So it's slightly different. And that has um, been a fascinating project to work on. I do it with a friend, so I'm collaborating um, with a co-author and an illustrator, which is a different way of writing books, which is normally solitary. So it's much more fun for me to to be in a in a team. And I work with football clubs and literacy charities and schools and football players as well who join us for live workshop events. And it's just been so fun and rewarding and inspiring. Um, to see how children and teachers and parents respond to something so positive. And, you know, in a way, it's proving my point about purpose and impact and what is rewarding in our careers, you know, is is that kind of thing rather than um, old measures of success, essentially. So for me, the measure of success of football school is that, um, I will get an email from a parent saying my child was an, hated reading, was a reluctant reader, and now he's picked up football school and now he, he loves to read um, be, be, because you've introduced him to a book that he's passionate about and that will last for the rest of his life. So that is really inspiring and rewarding to hear. And that's, that's enough for me. So um, it, it's a really great project. Again, it's using um, football for education and we're doing some really interesting things in that field with it as well. So thank you for asking me about it. I really like it. If you do have kids or any anyone listening has young kids in that age group who are reluctant readers or who just love football, um, I personally, I find it funny to write because uh, there are loads of cartoons and there are loads of silly jokes in it. It's something I'm really passionate about and it is really fun. So um, maybe some of your listeners will enjoy it as well. I mean, it's quite a remarkable journey. You've impacted so many people, you know, from from children to to adults to obviously the two of us here in Ireland. Let's just picture something for a minute and say you're you're walking down the street near where you live and you see a younger version of Ben Littleton, you know, 15 to 20 years 
um, back in the past walking by you, what would you say to that younger version of yourself? <laughs> wow, what, what, what a question. I mean, I would say, um, you know, not I, wish, not I wish I'd written Edge earlier, but I wish I knew some of the things I found out in Edge then that I know now. And a lot of them are around this kind of stuff. You know, my measures of success were all wrong. My idea of um, what what impact I wanted to make and what my purpose was was all wrong. Um, my concept of creativity was really not where I wanted it to be. I was um, I was comparing myself a lot to the people around me, which was really negative and not helpful. And so, spending time with football coaches and you know senior decision makers in in football has actually helped me um, develop my own edge, I guess, but also helps with my psychology, um, with with me defining my own measures of success. Um, and that spills over into every, into every part of my life. It spills over into my personal relationships. It spills over into my home life. Um, so the lessons I've learned from writing these books and spending time with these really incredible talent developers um, has helped me now. And so that is probably what I'd, what I'd say. What, what, you know, when I was a kid, I wish I had, have, I wish there was a football school for me to have read because then I would have been really passionate about reading and learning about the world through football back then. And, you know, by, by the same token, um, I think my, approach to work and relationships would have been different had I read Edge and 12 Yards to a certain extent earlier. But then, you know, I got there in the end. So, you know, we all go, we all go at different paces. That's excellent. Having looked to the past, what about the future? What's next for Ben? Wow, that is a, uh, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Again, I, I think, you know, th- things are changing the measures of success are changing. The ways we are working are changing. If I'm still doing football school in five years' time, I'll be delighted because it means there's people still interested in it. I'm fascinated in developing cultures and leadership programs and using football as a tool for education in whatever way um, I can. Um, I'm interested in helping clubs stay culturally relevant. Uh, I'm interested in... Um, how society and behaviours are changing. So we're seeing new formats come about. We're seeing new revenue streams. We're seeing new challenges to all sports, but especially football. Um, You know, Netflix says, uh, you know, our competition is sleep. So how how the world of football or sport is going to compete with um, new forms of entertainment, um, you know, is really interesting period in, in sport. So I'm helping... Um, organizations, uh, um, football clubs, and leagues, um, trying trying to work out ways to to stay relevant and to 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 be able to compete with the with with other forms of entertainment. So that's really interesting. Um, and I like speaking to people who have got interesting stories and interesting approaches to talent development. And I get I find that enormously rewarding as well. So. I was thrilled that, you know, when I spoke to Graham Potter, he was at a small club in Sweden and now he's, uh, you know, semi-established Premier League coach. Um, when I spoke to Thomas Tuchel, he was um, 
you know, he was second in the Bundesliga and now his team is still in the Champions League. Uh, he's at PSG. I spoke to Didier Deschamps before France won the World Cup and I was delighted that, you know, he was coach when they won the World Cup. So I, I'm, I'm fascinated by um, the talent developers who I, I tapped into what is happening and are very happy in certain respects to share some of their secrets, some of their methodologies to people who are interested in it as well. And so I'm always looking for the next Thomas Tuchel and the next Ralph Ranick. And I know they're out there. So, um, you know, I continue to, to have interesting conversations with them as well. And Ben, just like to pause for a minute and take time to acknowledge you for the legacy of, of reading and the information that you've distilled to adults and children alike. There's a lot to be said for it. So thank you for that. It brings us on very nicely to the signature question of the show, Sleepy Perform Repeat, which is quite simply, what does high performance mean to you? What, that, I mean, I do, I do love that question. I love listening to um, everyone's different answers on the subject. I think um, high performance is about getting the best out of your own talent and being uh, keen to improve yourself. That for me, that for me is um, is high performance. I think you can talk about um, leadership and culture um, if you want, but I think it comes down to the individual. And high performance for me is about an individual who wants to improve and i hope in some ways my books help people do that in a small way but i think your work in in this whole field does that as well because people who listen to your podcast are showing that they are engaged in their development process and that in it that is also your legacy and so you know it becomes self-selecting we choose to speak to each other and work with each other because we both essentially want the same things to develop our talent as much as we can and to work out ways that we can we can do that and in doing that we can also help other people as well so um it becomes a virtuous circle i think multiplied by mentality exactly ben littleton from the two of us here we would just like to say thank you very much for educating us for giving us your time today for elucidating what what the edge really is all about so stay fit stay healthy and um, speak to you soon keep in touch Thank you, David. It's been really fun. And um, yeah, I look forward to listening to uh, many more of your podcasts. I won't re-listen to this one, but I'll listen to the, listen to the next one as well because they're all great. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.